Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. See, I am sending my messenger to repair the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift to bear witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in their wages, the widow and the orphan, against those who thrust aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, have not perished. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? And they argued with one another. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, It's fair to say, I think, that uh, Australians overall, on average are no lovers of authority. We like to think of ourselves as kind of Ned Kellys of old, right? The outlaw. We don't like those rules and regulations that get in the way of us just doing what we think is the right thing to do. We, we just have enough common sense, don't we? We don't need all these laws about stupid little things and regulations. And don't get me started on our politicians. If only they just do a little bit less, actually, and not get so involved in my life in all kinds of ways. Australians are are not so much lovers of authority, but it doesn't take long to see that really that's only on the surface. We actually do a pretty good job of paying lip service to our dislike of authority, but in practice we kind of seem to love it. 
This was absolutely in evidence in the global pandemic we've experienced in the last few years. Perhaps Australians aren't as anti-authoritarian as we might have thought. Uh, there's a professor at Monash University, his name's Graham Davison, and his primary research interest is the, the concept of Australia's national identity. Who do we as a nation think we are? And he says this, he says, if Ned Kelly was still around today, he'd probably have been an anti-vaxxer. Yet no doubt, just as anti-vaxxers today, he would find himself in the minority. He goes on, stemming from our convict beginnings, we often tend to think that Australians are anti-authoritarian. They were all kind of like little Ned Kellys who are questioning of and rebellious toward authority. But, he concludes, I think it's probably the reverse. We're usually compliant and obedient. There was some really interesting data on this um, a few years back. The ABC ran this online uh, survey um, called Australia Speaks. It had 50,000 respondents to it. In some ways, not the most scientific kind of survey uh, you know, that's, that's ever been done. That's not what they were shooting for, but it's a pretty good sample size, right? 50,000 people across the country. And one of the questions they asked was, uh, from a, a list of, of options, uh, tell us what you think the top 10 things are that make someone Australian. What came out at number three or four in the list? I can't remember exactly which. It was one of those two. What came out at number three and four on the list? Follows the rules. For all of our kind of sense of ourselves as anti-authoritarian, it turns out that actually a lot of the time we're pretty happy to follow the rules, especially when there's something we're afraid of, as we saw in the last few years. Not wrongly, not wrong to have followed those guidelines. But especially when we're afraid of something, especially when we think actually, no, this is something that I agree with, very happy to follow authority at that point. Authority is not really any problem for us, you see, as long as it doesn't touch certain areas of our lives. That comes crashing into conflict in this passage we read here with what Jesus has to say about himself. Jesus says, implicitly in this passage, but clearly for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, and he says it plenty of other places in the scriptures too. Here in this passage before us tonight from Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the ultimate authority. I'm the ultimate authority over everything including over every aspect of your life. Have multiple, perhaps conflicting internal reactions to hearing that, I'm sure. And so we're going to unpack that a little more as we uh, look at this passage this evening. Uh, what does that mean for our lives? What does, it, what does it mean that Jesus is the ultimate authority? We're going to unpack it under two headings. You'll see them on the screen uh, in front of you. Firstly, recognizing Jesus' authority. And secondly, accepting Jesus' authority. And they kind of correspond to the two paragraphs in that passage we've read from Matthew. So firstly, recognising Jesus' authority. So we're back in Jerusalem as this passage begins, and once again, Jesus goes straight to the temple. Uh, remember, just the day before, he had turned over the tables of the moneylenders and those selling doves in the temple courts, uh, momentarily bringing to a complete halt the entire sacrificial system that was kind of the rationale for the existence of the temple in the first place. For just a moment as Jesus interrupted those going in to buy their sacrifices to take into the temple, for just a moment, people could not use the temple to draw near to their God in the way that it was designed. And here Jesus is again in the temple, this time teaching those who are gathered in the courts there. Uh, Jesus kind of walking around the temple like he owns the place. I'll say what I like, thank you very much. I'll flip whatever tables I like, thank you very much. And the people who are used to having control over the temple, the chief priests and the elders who we meet here in this passage, they're not very happy about it. They want to know what makes Jesus think he can treat the temple like it's his house. 
One of my sisters-in-law told me about a friend of hers from church. Uh, One day, this friend walked out from church after the service to go and pick up their kid from creche. They're looking around for their little boy, kind of, where is he? he, I, I can't see him with any of his regular teachers. Oh, there he is. Wait, who's that? There's a strange woman I've never seen before breastfeeding my child. Seriously, true story. What is going on? You can understand and imagine her response. She was shocked, couldn't say anything, she said at first. Just stunned, silence. And then, of course, goes up to this stranger and says, what do you think you are doing? What gives you the right to treat him like he's your child? What are you doing? Uh, The stranger, who just happened to be a visitor to their church that day, if you're a visitor here tonight, we expect better behaviour than that, I'm sorry. <laughs> she was a visitor to their church that day, uh, and, and, you know, when my sister-in-law's friend goes up to her, what, you know, what are you doing? That's my son, give him back. Um, you know, the visitor said, well, he, kinda, he was a bit upset and he looked hungry, so I'd, I thought I'd feed him. Not okay. Not okay. Uh, what made her, you know, think that she had the right to do that? Who did she think she was? There's something a little bit like that going on here in this passage with the chief priests and the elders. I know, it's a long, it's a long, it's a long bow to draw. I know, I know. But the chief priests and the elders, right, they're going, who does Jesus think he is? What is he doing? I was telling this story during the week to our new site pastor at Dremoin, uh, Simon uh, Elliott, uh, who's, uh, who I think stole the story to use in his sermon today as well. And he was kind of saying, he was reflecting and going, you know what, it's kind of like Jesus comes into the temple and he's breastfeeding their kid, except that it turns out that actually it's really Jesus' kid because he's the Lord of everything. I think we're stretching it a bit too far at this point. So, <laughs> outrage because someone is treating something like it's theirs when it's not. That's what's going on here. That's how it looks, at least, to the chief priests and the elders. They want to know what makes Jesus think he can treat the temple like he owns it. And so they ask him a question. Pick up the story with me from verse 23. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people, the local authorities, they came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, this isn't just an off-the-cuff question for them. It's not as though they've just been kind of walking towards Jesus. They're like, oh, hey, while while you're here, can I kind of ask you this? No, they've been calculating how to get the right kind of response they want from Jesus. They're trying to trap him at this moment. Because if he says he's doing these things by God's authority, they automatically, straight away, they're going to say, you are a blasphemer who thinks he can speak for God, and they'll punish him accordingly. On the other hand, if he says it's merely his own authority, they're going to do everything they can probably fairly easily, really, to discredit him. To go, who cares about this guy? Some prophet from Nazareth whose dad's a carpenter. Why why would he care what he thinks? His authority, what's that to us? But Jesus, as he always does in these moments, because he's so insightful about other human beings, about what's going on for them, about their motivations, what's going on in their hearts, he sees the trap. And so he responds, verse 24, Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's his question. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Uh, here's the kind of you know, shift in the power balance that goes on at this point. The, the local authorities think that they've cornered Jesus. They've got him with this question. But just as Jesus had done in the temple the day before, then literally, he's flipped the tables on them here. Now it's the chief priests and the elders who are trapped. 
And the response is quite comical, really, when you think about it. They stand around arguing with one another. If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, we don't want to get on the wrong side of the, the, the popular masses, the crowd, who have a lot of time for John the Baptist. We're afraid of them because they think he's a prophet. Now, all of a sudden, they're the ones who have been cornered by Jesus, and they know it. So effectively, they plead the fifth. They answered Jesus, verse 27, I don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Uh, Jesus has escaped the trap that was set for him. He's gotten out. He's he's managed to to not have to answer the awkward question they've asked him because it's not his time yet. Jesus does this a lot in the Gospels. It's not yet his time to die. And so he de-escalates cleverly. But of course, Jesus, as pretty much always, is doing heaps more here than just uh, escaping the trap that was set for him. He does actually answer their question not directly, but by, uh, but by implication. The implication of his question is this, that if you knew where John the Baptist's authority came from, then you'd know where mine came from too. If you recognise John the Baptist's authority, then you'd also recognise mine. A number of times in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus draws parallels like this between his own ministry and that of John the Baptist, and it's clear why he does so. Uh, John was the one who proclaimed the message that the Messiah was coming, God's promised king who would rule with God's authority and rescue his people and put the whole world to rights again. And John identified Jesus as that Messiah. And so Jesus draws a parallel here between how people respond to John the Baptist, his message and ministry, and therefore how they're likely to respond to him. If you recognise that John is sent from God, then you'll recognise that Jesus, who John's point to, is also sent from God. But if you don't recognize John's authority as a prophet of God, you you probably won't recognize Jesus' authority as the Messiah of God. Uh, Jesus is answering this this question for those who have eyes to see, ears ears to hear. He's saying, actually, you answer that question about John, you answer that question about what you think that I think about John, you'll know the answer. And so here's the thing. If Jesus is doing all these things by the authority of God, with authority given to him by God as God's king, then he has ultimate authority over the temple. But not just that, of course. If Jesus bears the authority of God, then he has ultimate authority not only over the temple, but over everything, including over you and me and our lives. It's a confronting thing when you think about it. Now, the chief priests and the elders see that what Jesus is doing here is challenging their authority. And the thing is, he's a challenge to our authority as well. If Jesus really does bear the authority of God, then you are not the ultimate authority over your own life. He is. There might be times when you don't like that very much. Um, I'll be honest, there are times when I find that difficult actually as well. As much as we love uh, seeing Jesus get one over the religious elites of his day in this clever little interchange, the truth is that in many ways we're a lot like them. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told what's right. We don't like being told how to live. We don't like being told that we don't call the shots. We tend to think that we know what's best for us and what we want. Uh, But Jesus says different. As my favourite Texan theologian, Stanley Harris, puts it, uh, one way to summarise the gospel is this. God is God and I am not God. He actually continues, and that's good news to not be God, it turns out. God is God and I am not God. Jesus says, I am the ultimate authority. As he says right at the end of this gospel, right at the end of Matthew, after his resurrection, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
And so being a follower of Jesus, being a Christian, means giving up authority over ourselves as we recognise his authority over everything, including us. And so you have to ask the obvious question, don't you? When was the last time that the authority of Jesus in your life meant that instead of doing what you wanted, you did what he wanted, which at that particular moment was something quite different? It's when what Jesus wants for us and what he wants from us is radically different for what we want ourselves that we see most clearly whether or not we really have recognised his authority or whether perhaps we're a little bit more like the chief priests and the elders than we'd like to admit. Uh, put that thought aside for a moment. We'll come back to that in just a little while. Uh, what we've seen so far is Jesus' implicit challenge to the religious elites as well as to his hearers there in the temple that day and to us as well as we read this in the scriptures. The challenge is to recognise that he is the one who has authority. Uh, but as we've already begun to see and unpack a little bit, it's not enough simply to recognise Jesus' authority as God's king. We also need to accept that authority. And that's where we're going, point two, in the little story that Jesus tells. Point two, accepting Jesus' authority. Uh, having pinned the chief priests and the elders, uh, ev evading a direct answer to their question, forcing them into a non-answer answer, Jesus tells a parable. He tells this story about two sons. The first of the sons refuses to recognize his father's authority. Nope, I won't go and work in the vineyard, he says. But by the end of the, of the day, later in the day, we presume he's not only recognized his father's authority, but accepts it. He does what his father asks, he obeys. The second son recognizes his father's authority. Yes, sir, he says, politely, deferentially. Of course I'll go and do that, father. Uh, but then he doesn't. He doesn't do the work. He doesn't go. He doesn't, in the end, accept his father's authority. He refuses to obey. And his refusal to accept his father's authority reveals that, of course, really deep down, he doesn't even recognize it. He thinks he's the one calling the shots. It's mere lip service to his father's authority over him. It's a simple story with a simple meaning, and Jesus uses it to pose another question to the chief priests and the elders. Verse 31. He asked them, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first, the one who says no in the beginning, but then actually does obey what his father has asked. And then Jesus gets real pointy. He does this sometimes, particularly with people who he, who he sees are, are arrogant and proud of heart, who need to be brought down a few pegs spiritually to see their real state before God. He kind of you know, sticks the metaphorical knife right in now that he's kind of got the edge in the conversation, just twists it a little bit just to see what will happen. Verse 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you didn't change your minds and believe him. Jesus is saying to the chief priests and the elders, right there to their faces in public in the temple courts, you're like that second son. Because you wouldn't recognize John the Baptist's authority, because you won't recognize mine, you're really rejecting God's authority. Because you won't recognize that John's ministry and my ministry came from heaven, what you're really doing actually is rejecting your father in heaven. By contrast, who does the father's will like the first son? Tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus says. 
Uh, tax collectors, as many of you will know, um, their job basically was to gather money from their fellow Jews on behalf of the Roman governors who were the occupying forces, uh, kind of like uh, Second World War French collaborators with the Nazi occupation. They were viewed as traitors to their own people, despised. Uh, prostitutes weren't necessarily the worst kind of sinner. Uh, there were, of course, plenty of Jewish men in Judea who were promiscuous adulterers. The thing with prostitutes is that it's just really obvious. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone can see their sin. It's right there on the surface. And just like the tax collectors, they were ritually unclean. They couldn't go into the temple. You're supposed to do particular things to make yourself spiritually clean if you'd come into contact with them. Their sin, like that of the tax collectors, is on display for everyone to see. But Jesus says these most obvious sinners of all, they're the ones who are actually obeying God. The very ones who by their lives appeared to be openly rejecting God's authority over them are now the ones who are entering into his kingdom. The most in-your-face sinners are are beating the religious elites into God's good graces. How can that be so? This simple little story, this parable, shows us. Uh, The first son looked like he was refusing his father's authority. And, you know, there's no reason to think that he's not, actually. I don't want to do that. I know that, you know, I probably should, but I'm not going to. But even if he's a little late, he comes around. Now, look at how it's described for us in verse 29. What happens to him? He changed his mind. Uh, The Greek word there is related to the word for repentance in the New Testament, that idea of turning around and walking in the other direction, away from from the things of the world and instead to walk toward God and his ways. That's what this son does. That's what the tax collectors and the prostitutes have done. They've repented. They heard John's challenge, which Matthew records for us back in chapter 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They've repented and now they're entering into the kingdom. Uh, John came, Jesus says, in the way of righteousness. And these sinners show us how to walk in that way. They respond to John's challenge back in chapter 3 again to bear fruit worthy of repentance. Uh, Here's what they show us. Here's what they're an example of. is that the way of righteousness that God calls us to looks like, in this life, repentance. That's the heart of the Christian life. To be a Christian doesn't mean to be perfect, that you will never do anything that kind of offends God ever again. No, to be a Christian means to repent. The first time you become a Christian, the big R repentance, the moment where you turn your heart to the Lord Jesus and are saved once and for all, the conversion moment, and all the little R repentance moments day in, day out, hour by hour, year after year. The Christian life at its heart, the way of righteousness, is repentance. That's what it means not just to recognize Jesus' authority, but to accept it. To say, I will turn away from those things that Jesus calls sin and turn toward those things that he calls righteousness, that he says are good, that he says honour him and please him. That's what you should do in response to Jesus' authority, but of course what Jesus is illustrating here is that that's not what the chief priests and the elders have done. Take a look again at verse 32. We read it just before, let me read it for you again. Jesus says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you didn't change your minds and believe him. We ought to take careful note of this verse, I think. Jesus is alerting us here to a very real spiritual danger. Even after you saw it, he says, and what's the it? The it is the tax collectors and the prostitutes repenting. 
seeing their lives change as they turn toward God instead of to their own sinful desires. And Jesus says to them, you've seen how the tax collectors and the sinners have repented, how they've changed their ways, how they're now walking the way of righteousness in repentance. And he says, that's how you should have responded. Seeing their repentance should have led you to change your mind as well. Seeing their repentance should have led you to repentance. Instead, what it seems to have done for them is to confirm that John's baptism, John's ministry, Jesus' ministry too, isn't from God. It's not from heaven. Because they see these sinners repent and go, if those kind of people, if they're the ones who are going in, then this can't be from heaven, surely. Almost certainly what's going on for the uh, chief priests and the elders here is that they kind of think that they're above people like that, those kinds of sin, and so they're above that kind of repentance as well. They see the tax collectors and the sinners and think, well, obviously they need to repent, dirty, rotten nothings that they are. Maybe they go even further. Maybe they think to themselves, well, sure, they've changed. Whoop-de-doo. See how that's going in a week. See if they're still walking the way of righteousness in a few days' time. They'll be back to their own tricks in no time at all. It's easy to see how that kind of logic then extends to John and his ministry and even to Jesus and his ministry. If people like that are flocking to those guys, then this so-called prophet, this wannabe Messiah, they certainly don't have authority from God. But what Jesus says is, no, no, actually, they're the ones who get it. They're the ones who get it, and you don't. And so they're going in, and you're getting left behind. You might look much better outwardly, but inwardly, in your heart, you are in just as much of a mess, if not more, and your need for repentance is just as great as theirs. They once, perhaps, with their lives, openly rejected God's authority by the way that they lived, but they've repented, they've accepted his authority, and it's changing them. Even if not straight away, even if they've still got work to do, they're walking in a different direction now. They're walking the way of righteousness. And Jesus says to these spiritual leaders, these local authorities in his day, he says, your rejection of God's authority might not be so open, but you're persisting in it now. You've fallen into the spiritual trap of thinking that you're less in need of repentance than those others. It's that kind of spiritual trap that can be a danger for all of us. And so here's a little spiritual diagnostic question for you to use in examining your own heart. Here it is. How do you respond to the repentance of others? How do you respond to the repentance of others? Uh, When you see people repent of real sin in their lives, maybe there's someone wrestling with something in your fellowship group and they've just been open about how it is that they've been seeking to to actually walk the way of righteousness, to repent and turn a new way. Perhaps it's someone you hear about on a grapevine, perhaps it's something you see on TV. Whatever it is, big or small, when you see people repent of real sin in their lives and bear the fruit of that repentance, what happens in your own heart? Do you say, well, sure, what took them so long? Or do you say, praise God, Lord, grant me that kind of repentance in my own heart and life as well? When you see people whose sins are more on the surface than yours, do you rejoice that you're not like them? Or do you ask God to show you where in your own life and heart you're exactly like them and ask him to lead you to deeper and deeper repentance? How do you respond to the repentance of others? Friends, what Jesus tells us here is that he has authority over everything, including over your own life. And that means that sometimes what he wants for you and asks from you won't be what you want. 
That can make it very easy indeed to kind of resist, even if you don't really realise you're doing it, to resist his authority. Uh, And so you've got to ask the question, in what ways are you merely paying lip service to Jesus' authority over your life? In big things or in little things, in public things or things hidden away in private? Whatever it is, what Jesus says to you is that you need to let go of your authority over that thing. You need to give it back to the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. To let Jesus be the one who rules your heart. Uh, As I mentioned before, not this week, but next week will be uh, Ash Wednesday, the first day of the season of Lent. Uh, Traditionally, a time of self-examination, focused repentance in the lead-up to Easter. It's a training ground, if you like, for that work we need to do every day as God's people, to be walking in the way of righteousness by repenting of our sins and learning to live more and more the way the Lord leads us. So how might you use that season this year to walk in the way of righteousness, repenting of your sins, accepting Jesus' authority over parts of your life where you've been resisting it, maybe for a long time? What is accepting Jesus' authority going to look like for you practically to do here tonight and into the future? Uh, We started out by just mentioning that uh, we as Australians have um, a bit of a tortured relationship to authority, a love-hate relationship with it, if you like. Uh, The same can be true when it comes to the authority of Jesus, can't it? Even for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, because there really can be things about what Jesus asks us, where he leads us, that are hard to accept. And so as we draw a close, it's just worth asking really simply, why would you accept Jesus' authority over your life? Why would you willingly submit to his will, even welcome it, especially when it clashes with your own desires? The answer, of course, lies in how it is that Jesus himself exercises that ultimate divine authority that's been given to him from the Father. Because he's a different kind of son to either of the two sons in the parable that he tells. He's the son who not only says, yes, Father, your will be done, but the one who does it. He has ultimate authority over creation. And what does he do with it? He uses it to heal broken bodies, to raise people from the dead, to restore relationships. He has ultimate authority over sin and death. And what does he do? He uses it to forgive. He exercises his authority on our behalf for us, for our good at all times. And he does it at great cost to himself. Because in order to do his father's will, of course, he went to the cross, where the human and demonic authorities alike conspired to crush him and drive him into the grave, where he bore in himself all the penalties, all the consequences for all of our feeble little attempts to try to assert some measure of authority over our own lives. And smashing through death into life everlasting, he now freely gives life to all who commit themselves to him in repentance and faith. It's because he exercises his authority like that, in that way, for our good at great cost to himself, that we can trust him, that we can give our whole lives over to him, even when doing his will is costly, even when it's not what we want, at least at first glance, even when it's not what the world around us says that we need or that we should do. And so, friends, as you come to the Lord's table this evening, what you need to do is to hand your life over to Jesus again. To hold out your hands and say, the only thing that I've got to give to you here is, is all those ways in which I've walked the wrong way, all those ways in which I've tried to be the authority over my own life. Give them to Jesus and receive instead his body and blood, his grace poured out for you at the cross. A token of his pledge and of his love. And receive it as a sign that all authority in heaven and on earth has been put to work to bring you into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus does at the cross. Let's pray that that beautiful use of authority for us in that way, that that would be driven deep into our hearts this evening. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we are 
in awe of your authority over all things. You're the one who made everything. You're the one who made each one of us. And you've given authority to the Lord Jesus to be the one who rules this world, the one who brings us through repentance and faith into salvation, to enter into your kingdom, to be your family. What an amazing thing, Father. What a tremendous privilege. Father, keep drawing our hearts to where we see Jesus do that at the cross so that again and again and again we might be ready to give up our own authority, to hand it over to the Lord Jesus, to walk in his way of righteousness in repentance and faith for the rest of our days. Father, help us to see that clearly. Help us to love the Lord Jesus more and more and help us to be more and more like him in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.